Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I have a very special guest with me. Someone I randomly bumped into at the last NAM show was very excited to finally meet in person after years of friendship. And uh, we struck up a conversation and said, you know, you should come on the show and talk about these amazing things that you're doing. So without further ado, here she is, Karen Garrity. Karen, how are you? I am great. Thank you. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Welcome to my first video podcast using an actual quality camera. Nice. Nice. Well, let's hope let's hope it goes well. Oh, I'm sure it will. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I I don't know how long we have known each other. It's got to be at least 7 or 8 years, but we've never met. I was just walking along at the NAM show. I was saw you coming. I thought I'll slow down, motion for you to go through as polite gentleman, and you recognized me, and we just started talking, realized who you were, and I thought, "Wow, this is really cool." Right. I know. I I had the same reaction because I think we've actually we've been um, Facebook friends for at least eight years as both as members of the Perspectives Forum for composers. And I think that's that's where we've met and we've chatted on on different discussions and things like that. And as as you were ushering me through, I took a look at your name badge and I'm like, dang, I know who that is. (laughs) I wasn't expecting to, to recognize. I mean, it was it was great. It was great. So that's what happened. Yeah. And, you know, I'm usually so focused when I'm at the show that I don't other than like physical proximity, I don't notice a whole lot. I'm just like, I need to go to the Pearl booth. I need to go see Ibanez or whatever. And um, other than like you could have passed right by me and I would have never known. So I'm oh, glad you took a moment to look. Well, me too. <laughs> Me too. It was a it was a nice diversion. Now, did we meet on MySpace or was it Facebook? Facebook. I didn't okay. have MySpace. Yeah. Yeah. You're good that you avoided that trap. I did. I did. <laughs> I actually went over there the other day and, and I still have a profile that I can't access, but it's just it's slow in an advertising jungle. Oh geez. I Pretty didn't even wild. think it would still be live. Yeah. It wow. really is. All right. So you started out really as a cellist. What drove you to cello? Because that's not a common instrument for a woman. That's a funny story. It actually goes back to fourth grade in New York. Um, we were I was in the Long Island pu- uh, public school system on Long Island. Or no, it was called the Island Trees Public School System. And my best friend and I wanted to do the same thing. And we didn't know what it was going to be. And God bless that orchestra teacher. He came and he did a bang up job. You know how they go to the classroom with all their instruments and do the demonstrations. And he probably looked at us too and saw them. There's the two suckers I need to play cello for (laughs) me this year. And he talked us into it. He had two cellos. He saw two little 10 year olds there and he talked us into it, and um, I didn't realize this, or I didn't remember it, but I recently reacquainted with that best friend last year in Colorado, and we met for lunch, and it was like 40 years had never happened. All of a sudden, you know, here we're we're catching up, and she reminded me of things like we had to borrow and use the same cello. I didn't remember that at all, but she's wow. still mad at me. Because 
Um, first of all, we had to, you know, you know how we tell stories to our kids about how far we had to walk to school and all of that uphill both ways. Well, we did. <laughs> we had to walk this dang cello at least a half a mile with one of us holding the neck, the other holding the end pin. I'm, I'm sure the orchestra teacher would have died if he saw us doing it, but it was the only way we could get that stupid thing home. And then apparently me being the goody two shoes that I am, I was the one who practiced and she didn't. And she's still pissed off at me to this day that I got first chair and she didn't. And um, it was only because, because I, for some weird reason, I wanted to play that instrument, whereas she was being forced to play that instrument by her parents. So it was a little bit of a different thing, but um, my family ended up moving away three years after that and moved to a very small town in um, on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. And that was where I had to kind of either choose to step up my game and take it a little more seriously because there was no orchestras orchestra program. So I had to either take private lessons and get into the um, the Portland Youth Symphony or quit. And I wasn't ready to quit. I still kind of liked it. So that's where it kind of all started. I, I got into with a good, a really good um, cello teacher and got into the Youth Symphony and got to tour all over the world. And I mean, it was just, it was amazing. So that was, that was my story. That's how I, that's how I got playing the cello. Did you, how long did you guys have to share? Three years. <laughs> the whole three years. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. I think the cello is such a beautiful instrument. There's something about that, the sound, the vibration that just connects with your center of gravity and really kind of fills you up. Yeah, I think it's, I, my personal take on it is because it's very similar to the human voice, mm-hmm. uh, that it resonates with people and what i like about it is that i can i can be a melodic instrument i can be a harmonic instrument or i can be a bass i can also be i can also be a percussion instrument so i like the versatility of it i tend to even sometimes when i'm writing i tend to forget how high the range of a cello actually goes oh yeah i mean well into viola territory Oh, at least. Yes. Yeah. And it, way up, we can, we can get into mid mid to low high range of the violin as well. It might not sound as good. Mm-hmm. The, the, the tone tends to get, uh, it can get a little edgier or a little more metallic sounding, but a, a good sound engineer like yourself and a, and a great instrument will um, knock that down right away. So Well, and the higher up the neck that you go, um, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, when you get uh, lower on a cello, you have a much wider vibration. The more that you get towards the center of the instrument, the the vibration isn't quite as much. So those higher notes don't have the same strength that they do as your lower notes. They, yeah, yeah that, that can be, that can be true. I mean, we can play them loud, <laughs> but, but they don't possibly resonate as much as they would on the lower, on the lower strings. But still can sound unbelievably beautiful. Oh, I agree. You know, cello, uh, we talked about this a little bit when we were talking the other day. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to listen to it, but the song Stargazer by Rainbow, which is one of their most famous songs, was actually written by Richie Blackmore on a cello. I love that story. And I'm sorry to say I've not had a chance to listen to it yet. That's okay. (laughs) One of those really busy work weekends, but it's on my list. I'd rather have you be busy. 
because that's a, a good thing overall. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So you're still performing now. Yes, yes. I had a concert at Disney Hall on Saturday, and then I worked a sound engineering gig on Sunday. Um, I still actively do weddings and, um, you know, pretty much everywhere they need a cello. What has what has changed over the years is simply just the the song list, really. I mean, I mean, back when I got started fresh out of college, when you got hired to play a wedding, it was fairly typical. You played your wedding charts, which was Mendelssohn and Wagner and Pachelbel and all of that stuff. And then you just did whatever classical stuff you had in your books as for prelude. But now the sky's the limit with it, with it, with the onset of things like YouTube and Spotify and Apple music and all of that. I think it's opened up, it's opened the world up for clients like my brides who's, who will have heard something on, on YouTube and they'd heard a string quartet play a Taylor Swift cover, or they've done, they heard, you know, Metallica, or they heard your, your, your song that you were talking about. Um, and they want us to do that for their wedding. So it's, it's been real interesting because if the she music isn't out there, um, we end up writing it for them. And, and I know most of my colleagues do the same. If, if it's not out there, we can usually pen a, 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 a reasonable chart for a very nominal fee and, they get what they want. They get their heart's desire. They get to hear it on either solo cello or they get it with a string quartet or whatever they want. Um, but your typical wedding isn't here comes a bride and there she goes any longer. It's um, it's it can be the Beatles. It can be it can be Coldplay. It can be whatever the latest greatest on the radio is. So it's kind of have fun. A, a friend who's a karaoke host and she sang at her. They each sang a song at their wedding and her song was I can't believe I shaved my legs for this. Oh, I love that. But is that a really a song? It is. Oh my gosh, I have to look that up. Country song, I believe. But uh, oh, that's hilarious. It, it is amazing if you go on some of the sheet music sites like Sheet Music Plus, you can find a lot of popular song arrangements for classical instruments, whether it be like Master of Puppets for Clarinet by Metallica. Yep, yep. And I actually, I, I, I actually have subscriptions to probably. 10 of those different sites because I use them so often. It's, it has paid itself back in spades by being able to, if, if I can find a decent quartet version of a song for a client for $12.99 or $14.99 on Sheet Music Plus, um, that serves them much better than me having to go and write the same thing. Uh, if if we want to tweak it a little bit, we can do that. But for the most part, they're they work out great, and um, it it serves its purpose real well. If we're doing it for a, a part of the ceremony, they only need, you know, fifteen twenty seconds. So mm-hmm. it it serves itself really well. Is is Canon and D though still the traditional part where the bride comes down the aisle? Oftentimes, a bride will use that. Um, a lot of times, we'll, we'll use that for the seating of family and or the wedding party. Uh, we typic- I typically try to find something that is written in four or eight bar phrases so that I can, I can end it so it sounds like it meant to cadence there. And that's actually how the song was written. And then the, the wedding guests are like, oh, wow, how cool is it that that song was written exactly for the length of that aisle? 
that's why you hire professionals. That's our job is to keep an eye on all of that and, and watch as people are walking down the aisle. Um, try to figure out where the heck did the ring bearer go? I played a wedding once where I think we played Paco Bell for t- 32 minutes while people were running around in the back of the chapel going, we can't find him. He fell asleep out in the foyer on one of the back pews and it took a while for them to find him. So we just kept playing and kept playing. I mean, I would have switched songs if I'd known what was going on. We could have circled back to it, but we didn't know. So we just kept playing. But the the fun thing that's coming out and then we can change subjects, but um, it seems like the new soup du jour in wedding world is mashups. And I'm doing a wedding uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm looking over here because I actually bought the music from Sheet Music Plus. We're doing a mashup of Lover by Taylor Swift that has been put together with Canon and D. Oh, and wow. then the and and I'm doing that with solo cello and a friend who plays the keyboard miraculously. He plays everything by ear. He is an absolute wonderkin. Um, so we're going to be doing that one. And then it was, we were talking about that. He, he, he challenged me. He said, hey, look up this other mashup. And he wasn't sure what it, where it was. But it's, um, it's by the same orchestrator. And I don't think I have his name here. I'm sorry, whoever you are. Um, but I bought your arrangements. Let me see if I can find it down here. No, it's not here. But he did an amazing mashup of Married Life, the theme from Up with uh, the Bach Gounod Ave Maria. And it's it's not like he just took 15 seconds of that song and then and then switched into Ave Maria and flipped back and forth, which which is the way some of the mashups are done. This one is really, really well done. It's 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 like in the left hand, he'll be playing he'll be playing the accompaniment from one song and then he'll be playing the melody of the other song in the right hand. That's so impressive. really cool. It's, I can't wait to do that one. I'm going to transcribe that for cello. So oh, that'll be amazing. Yeah. So with with Pachabell, there's a video on YouTube called the Pachabell Rant. And it shows oh, how, that. yeah, how, how really that song relates to so many other pieces of music. So that one I can see. But the Ave Maria, that would be a challenge. Oh, I love playing that one. And especially with the Bacchano arrangement. Um, it's it's so pretty. I've actually taken um, I've taken that version of Ave Maria and I've mashed it together with. So the melody of that Bacchano Ave Maria and then the other three instruments in the quartet are playing the um, cello suite number one in G major, the prelude. Uh, for for cello, so the the cellist is playing just the regular G major suite, and then the first violin is playing Ave Maria, second violin and viola are doing a little bit of both, and it works really well. So that's stunning. We keep it interesting. <laughs> I bet. Well, yeah. you mentioned that you uh, you played on the Disney stage, but you're also doing uh, gigs as an engineer. Uh, for those of us who are not, or for those who are not in the music world, I should say that is uh, audio engineering, and that is mixing. That is making sure that everybody sounds good, everybody can be heard with clarity and boosted up when they need to be. Yeah. Uh, you have a couple of things that you're involved with that we're going to talk about today. So I thought we should start with your course because this kind of really would be a, a good first step into getting into the other thing that you do. So you have a home recording course. I just took it last night. It's fantastic. 
It covers everything from how to set up a recording session to what kind of mic to use to how to name and export a file, which is so important. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how that came together? Yes, thank you for asking that. It it happened um, somewhat very unexpectedly, um, kind of right in the middle of the pandemic. One thing I, I saw happening, first of all, everyone knows that as professional musicians, our world just shut down. I was out on tour with a Gilbert and Sullivan Orchestra one day, and the next day we were being sent home and all of our performances were being canceled underneath us. We were actually dressed heading to the concert hall as they were canceling our show um, as the pandemic started locking down. So that was that was how that happened. And then. Um, I started watching my colleagues and I started seeing a lot of people learning how to set up their own home recording studios. And I'm good friends with quite a few uh, um, recording engineers who do the mixing in the studios. What I've, I've done is called front of house mixing, which is just making people sound good on a live stage. That to me, it, it I, I don't want to make it I don't want to minimize it, but it's uh, to me it's much easier than what you guys do in the studio when you're you're recording stems for for a composition. But um, I, I I know that a lot of shows they did shut down initially, but they had to keep going. You know, Hollywood had to keep churning out TV, and and we had they everyone had to kind of figure out. Oh my gosh, what's the new normal? And I saw a lot of really smart people realize, okay, I need to I need to put down a couple thousand dollars, buy the equipment, learn how to set up a recording studio fast and good, and learn how to export those raw stems, get them back to the engineer so he can then, he or she can then drop them into their board and mix the show and the show must go on. And I know for, I know um, a lot of shows did that. So I thought that was amazing. I talked to a lot of those musicians throughout the course of the pandemic and um, just kind of picked their brains and learned what they did and 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 just kept some good notes. And then it was July of last year. Well, actually, I need to back up a couple of months. I was asked by Paul Zabladowski to work on a fundraiser for his brother's um, music education program called the David Z Foundation. He wanted to record the song Barcelona by Queen with his wife, who's an amazingly accomplished opera singer. Paul is a rocker. She's a gorgeous, gorgeous opera singer. And um, they were perfectly suited to do this, uh, this song that Freddie Mercury did with Montserrat Caballé. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering her last name, but they did it before the Barcelona Olympics. We put together. I put out a, a call to all the musicians in in my database and said, "Who is set up to record remotely, and who would want to do this? It's a great thing. We're going to raise money for music education for inner city youth." I had over 200 emails overnight. Like I'm I'm in. Count me in. But I learned quickly that when I said, "Are you set up to record remotely?" Some people were. And, you know, they knew how to do it. They knew how to work Pro Tools and Logic and they were good to go. But then other people were doing recordings uh, more casually, maybe on their phones, on their iPhone or in GarageBand or using Audacity, things like that. So for this particular project, our engineers, um, we ended up having to hire supplemental staff 
to help us wade through all of these stems. We ended up with a 105-piece orchestra and a 60-piece choir recording Barcelona from their home studios all over the world. I mean, we had someone phoning it in, not phoning, they weren't phoning it in. They were sending their stems in from Patagonia, Argentina, and um, Greece, London, Mexico City, all over the United States. It was mind-boggling and um, very hard to put together, but we were thrilled with the finished product. And as we were kind of doing our debrief afterwards, we raised tens of thousands of dollars for the for the foundation, which was awesome. And um, and it was it was so it was so fulfilling. But I, I also realized I learned a lot throughout that process. And I realized that there was a teaching opportunity here. Um, first of all, I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see the musicians who had put all this money into building a home studio. I didn't see that going away after the pandemic. Once things started opening back up again, I wanted to figure out a way to still utilize that because oftentimes, and I know we're going to get into this later in your podcast, but when I'm contracting musicians for a client, for a composer, if they're a brand new composer, they may not have the budget to... Uh, to have a symphony orchestra at Fox Studio or Warner Brothers or something like that. So so I always am trying to think out of the box and think, okay, wh- how, how can we do this differently? Sometimes we have to pare down the orchestra size or sometimes we just have to think differently. And I thought, ah, if we can record 200 people from their homes for this project that we did for Barcelona, why couldn't we do that for your symphonic piece or that person's string quartet or whatever. And I think it can be done. So I got, I started talking with different people in the industry and, and assembling a rough module modular system um, for a home recording course. I felt like I was getting a lot of people asking me, what do I need? How do I do this? How do I set this up? How do I make it marketable? And um, through all of these conversations and and connecting with a dear friend, Rylan Talamo, um, who is also a sound engineer and a vocalist, um, we got talking and I asked him and I hired him to put together what I thought was going to be just one video. I said, could you put to go, put together a tutorial for people so that they could listen to your tutorial and figure out how to set up their own home studio? Sure, I can do that. Well, his video came back and it was like 25 minutes long and we're both going, it, it's great. It, it was phenomenal. The content was amazing, but no one is going to sit down and listen to a 25 minute video. So we both agreed immediately. We needed to break it up into bite-sized chunks. Chunks, And as we, um, as we sussed that out, we realized that if we put it into a modular format, then it was going to be a lot more usable to not only the beginner who needed to know everything, but it would also be possibly usable for somebody who just maybe needed to learn a fourth of it or one one only one video. So uh, we ended up. Let me pull that up so I can I can tell you how we broke it out. Um, 
sorry, I'm pulling up my academy. We have a, a tab on, on my website now called Academy and it and we'll probably have other tutorials. But right now we've got the um, Home Music Recording Studio ABCs. And we start with terminology because uh, a lot of people were saying, you say to bounce the tracks. I have no idea what that means, or, or what does it mean? What is a signal flow? You know, things like that. So, I started reaching out to people and saying, "All right, let's create a vocabulary list." And we ended up with a three-page vocabulary list. Um, we talk about signal flow, microphones, interfaces, preamps, laptops. We go through all of that, and he breaks it down even more and talks about what microphones are best for different instruments or vocals, you know, like you have a specific microphone there that works really well for, um, for vocal podcasts. And I, you have a, you have a screen on it too, right? Yeah. Pop filter. Yeah. Yeah. So he talks about all that. Then we go into what is a DAW, you know, a digital audio workstation. We go th into all that terminology and talk about compression, mono versus studio stereo, bouncing, exporting. Then he goes into Pro Tools for two modules. He goes into, no, I'm sorry, three modules. He goes into Logic for three modules. Oops. Did I lose you? Did you hear that? I hear something. Okay. 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 <laughs> the, the wonders of Zoom. Little gremlin. Yeah. And then we um, we finish with um, file naming conventions, which who would have thought that's a thing? But think of it, think of yourself as being the engineer who gets 250 stems back for a show that has to be engineered tonight and has to be delivered tomorrow. You don't know who it came from, what instrument it is, and what what part of the song it is, what cue it is, or anything. So. Um, so we we got very, very specific about how to name each cue so that the engineer can go, ah, that is Q1.01, 1, 1 boom, knock it in there, and so on. And then the last module, we go into video tips, how to, how to um, make your video look as good as you can and... Um, and it, and have it the, the most important thing in all of this that I probably should have started with was we wanted everything to be plug and play. It needed to be able to just send it to the engineer and the engineer go find great channel 10. This one goes into channel 49 and he doesn't have to auto tune. She he she sorry, bad, bad habit. They don't have to auto tune. They don't have to do anything um, as far as trying to line anything up. They they've got it all plug and play ready to go. So that's how this all came about. And then um, we ended up um, I ended up uh, formulating a, a great relationship with a guy at Sweetwater who said he would um, he would work with people, help them figure out what equipment best suited their needs and their budget. And then he would give them um, he would give them package deals. So I actually have used him multiple times setting up um, my own um, my own sound equipment on my own cello. And I also used him to buy a new pickup, a new, um, a new pedal, a new preamp, the whole nine yards. So he's great for that. So we wanted it to be kind of a one-stop shop where you could go if you wanted to for um, a very, very nominal sum and um, learn all of this as you wanted. And you buy it once, you own it for life. You set up your own uh, your own username, your own passcode, and then it's yours. 
and and it's always there. So that was that was kind of a long way of answering that. Did I, <laughs> no, it's great. Sorry. Okay. Uh, one thing that I, I'm so glad that they talked about in the course was that the when the engineer gets it, they need the entire length of whatever that that clip is going to be. So even if you don't start playing until the third minute in, you need to export the entire song. A very harsh lesson I learned on the first film I ever worked on was that I thought if I just give each piece and say, well, it starts at three minutes and one second, they would be able to pop it in. And that is not the case. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's so important to, um, to have prep prep files leading into bar one. So I think in the case of Barcelona, simply because we were working with people from so many different countries and converse and um, languages and all of that, we put in four measures of prep so that we gave them two bars to listen and hear the click. And then they clapped on the downbeat of bar three and it gave them two more complete measures to get their instrument up, flute, cello, whatever, and start playing at, on the downbeat of bar five. And, um, you know, this was all spelled out really, really meticulously in an instruction sheet to all the musicians. So they could just go, okay, step one, this is what I do. Step two, this is what I do. Um, you can't leave, when you're, when you're working in a remote setting, you can't leave anything to chance. Because, you know, you can't, I'm not there, like if I'm the, if I'm the, the booth manager, I'm not there to help them answer their questions. They've got to kind of figure it out on the fly or they have to be able to call me or they have to be able to call their engineers. So um, that, that is a really important, a really important lesson to know. And also to know to set your bit rate at the, the correct rate that is going to be the same bit rate as what the engineer's board is going to be. Mm-hmm. That's also spelled out very clearly in the instructions. That's something I learned. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, it, it's like all the things that you learned on that very first project, it was kind of right. rushed. It was so out of the blue and out of the box that, yep. yeah, you're going to learn some really important lessons. But oh, once yeah. you, you take that and you say, okay, now I've been through this. Here's everything that worked. Here's everything that didn't. And then you can just revise as you, as you go on. And you've got it down to a science now. Well, we kind of, but I've also, you know, I, I've been offering this course out to friends like, you know, like I did to you, I've been, I've been sending it out. I offered it as a promotion to um, the, the whole perspectives composer community, because I would like to get some feedback on it. I want to know how can we improve it? I don't see it as being an end all be all. Like you said, when we talked the other day, technology is going to change. Practices are going to change. Um, So it's something that I think we're going to have to continually update, but there may be things we forgot. I mean, it's, it, it, like you said, we we went through trial by fire with the Barcelona project, and we somehow survived it and came out of it with a with what we thought was a really good product. But there was a lot to learn that we could have done better. There were a lot of things we did really well right out of the gate, that which was fabulous. But then there were a lot of things that we learned. You know, we either needed not to do it all or we needed to just figure out another way to say it or do it or whatever. So, yeah. Well, I I think the other thing that's important is that, yes, gear is incredibly accessible now. You can find 
even decent sounding gear with a low end price. But if you don't know how to make it work, if you don't know how to get the best out of it, you're not going to be able to turn in a good recording. Right. Right. And you can't afford to say, hey, uh, I really like what you did. Can you re-record it? Because it distorted a little bit around minute three. And then trying to get a hold of that person, find a time where they can record when you're on a deadline. It doesn't like it has to be just done right. It has to be perfect. By the time it goes back to you, if you're my client and it goes back to you, I better darn not send you a flawed file. Yeah. Number one, that reflects on me. That reflects badly on me because I obviously haven't paid attention to detail enough to realize that there was a problem with the file. By the time the files go back to to the composer, they need to be pretty darn perfect. And and there's it, it, that sounds harsh, but that all just needs to be that needs to be figured out in your studio. You know, as you're recording it, you know what you need to do differently. You know what you need to you need to correct or whatever. So correct that before you send it over. Don't don't send it over with a note. Hey, by the way, I I blurped on the note in measure 51. Can you fix that? Right. No, no, they can't fix that. And um I don't want to ask them to fix that. They've got so much on their plate anyway. So and and the other side of things, just from general business practices, is if I sent you a note like that, I would probably expect that you're not going to reach out to me for another project. Right. Right. And, you know, Hollywood's a big town, but it's also a town with a long memory. And you 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 don't survive too many of those. You know, and with remote recording it, it the playing field is so much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting that feedback again. Are you? I'm not hearing it this time. Yeah, it's it's an echo. Now it's gone. Hmm. Very strange. <laughs> well, what I would it be without some technical out. challenges? There it is again. You know, when when it happens, I see a, a light go on under your window that is probably doing your audio recording. I wonder if your two programs are fighting one another. Well, I'm just using my iPhone plugged into uh, the computer for Zoom, and then I've just got my uh, DAW that's recording my microphone. So I'm not even doing audio through the phone at all. Oh. Yeah. Very strange. Uh, Well, this is the first time I'm using this setup, so there we go. Okay. Well, if we have to redo this, I'm available Wednesday. Okay. I think we'll be okay. Um, So this kind of leads me as a, as a segue to the other side of things. Let's say now I'm the composer and I need a string section or I need some brass or something. I come to you and go, Karen, can you help me? Absolutely. Yes, I can help you. Yeah. I, um, you know, you talked about how I started on the cello. Uh, So, so started in, started on the cello, went professional, played professionally um, chamber music, solos, uh, orchestral all over the place, Um, got into doing some rock concerts. That was fun and well and good. And then um, just organically, and I don't even remember how it happened, but I I started being asked to contract musicians for, we call them casuals, but that's basically anything that's kind of a one-off. So that could be a wedding, a party, a bar mitzvah, a corporate event, whatever. Um, so I got asked long time ago, like I was doing this as long ago as as in college, you know, I would be asked to throw together a string quartet for something. So I, I did that. And then 
I started building really good books because I was getting asked more and more to do it. And if you are being asked to lead it, you darn well better be able to provide the music for whatever ensemble that is. So started building up a pretty, pretty darn big, I mean, it fills a whole room now, a huge music library for a whole bunch of different ensembles. Um, and then agents um, started reaching out to me and asking me if I could kind of like be their go-to person for their agency. And they would contact me and say, I need a trio for this. I need a 15 piece orchestra for that. So I did that for, I've been doing that, gosh, for over 40 years. I've been doing that a long time. Um, and then um, started getting into um, contracting musicians for live events like um, big concerts. And, um, and then it started getting into booking musicians for recording sessions. Um, so as, as I was growing through all of this, I was growing my music library. I was growing my database of musicians. Um, we all at one time or another have said, oh, hey, I need a trumpet player for something. Who do you know? So as, as you do that, you keep adding them to your database. And after a while, you end up with a database of, you know, 500, then 1,000, then you, you end up with a database of really good musicians. And, you know, I've been here in Southern California now for, gosh, 30 some years. And um, I've played with this, these people over and over and over and over again. You know how well they're going to play and and how professional they are, that they show up on time, they look good, they're easy to work with, there's no drama. Those are the people that I want to work with, and I want to get them work mm -hmm. as well. So if you came to me tomorrow and said, hey, I have a project, I'm doing a TV show, I need a 32-piece orchestra, here's my breakdown, can you get that for me, we want to record next week. Yes, I can do that. And um, it, it just, again, kind of organically, I started reaching out to the studios, uh, getting to know the studio managers, finding, you know, learning their, their rates and their specs and how big their rooms are, what their maximum capacity is, so that, you know, if you came to me tomorrow and said, well, now I need to record 147 musicians, where can you put me? I would know. Mm -hmm. So um, that just kind of all, you know, has come to come to fruition, and um, I just got back from doing an anime convention. It's actually my third anime convention. I never thought I would be doing anime, um, but my gosh, what a fun! Oh, what a fun group of people! The music is all coming from their shows, which are either usually a series of episodes uh, that then oftentimes get made into major major length full length movies. Um, and they have these conventions all over the world, just like Comic-Con and um, the video game conventions and all of that. They um, they do these anime conventions all over the world. And I've done what I've um, contracted orchestras now in L.A., New York City, and most recently Washington, D.C., and got to um, fly there and play in the orchestras and um, put together the put together the musicians again, networking with people that I already knew who live in that area. And then they helped me put together a really kick-ass orchestra. And it's so much fun. The The audience members, the, the, the shows sell out like in five minutes. Once they find out who the composer is and what the show is. So for example, in New York City, we did, uh, we did the show My Hero Academia. 
the uh, composer is Yuki Hayashi, and he is a an absolute legend in Japan. So you put him in front of a bunch of anime fans in New York City in November. They they just went ape. They were like they were so excited to be there. They stood and danced and and sang the whole concert, and were in full cosplay full costume um and, and to be in the orchestra on the receiving end of all that energy i mean i have goosebumps just thinking about it because it's so energizing to play when when you know the audience is having that much fun oh, yeah. and the music is all rock and roll and heavy metal and edgy and you can't help but you know bang your head and it's just ugh, it's so much fun it's not playing pachelbel I like Taco Bell, <laughs> but it's I different. Like it is different. It yeah. is different. I do have, I have a version of Taco Bell in my quartet book that has this, it has this um, little paragraph at the bottom that says, you can play the traditional eight notes that you want to play over and over. Or if you would like to try to stay awake and keep your attention going, this, this, or this um, arranger then took the eight notes and made every variation on a theme of it throughout this cello part. It's, it's fun. It's really fun to play. So a little variety is always nice too. Yes. Uh, that's one thing that composers at home often don't get to experience is the live side of things, people enjoying their music, especially those of us who have worked in film. Even if we're in the theater with the audience, we don't get to experience them enjoying our music per se, they might just be enjoying the experience of the film. Right. I think it is, I think it is absolutely priceless to, I don't think that's the right word, but um, the, the advantage of, to me as the contractor, and also I can speak for the engineers as well, to have the composer in the booth is absolutely invaluable because I can't tell you how many times things get changed on the fly or like the composer will be sitting there and they'll they'll hear what they envisioned on the page get played by the orchestra and realize oh that's not what i wanted at all or oh crap that didn't work mm -hmm. so they they end up editing it on the fly and we're able to turn around and and put it in the room and make the change spontaneously it's it's amazing it's absolutely amazing i if if a composer can be there in person, which is why I, I love doing live sessions because it's so valuable to have the composer there. They they will oftentimes come with their own team of assistants. They'll if if they don't have a score reader, I've got I've gotten thrown in and I become a score reader um, because I can read and I, I I've got incredible attention to details, so I can help them suss out errors or make notes on the score and and make suggestions as a string player. Um, it, it, we end up working together really well as a team. Mm -hmm. And then, um, the other, I love it when the directors are able to come because, um, they, I've got a great story for this. They don't know what they don't, don't know. I hope that isn't rude, but, um, mm -hmm. when they get into that studio and they see this coming to life, I see their eyes light up and they're just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And um, and there we did one one movie in particular. It was a horror movie. It was one that um, the composer came to me and said, 
I don't think there's any way I'm going to be able to record this in L.A., but I'd really like to. He already had his flight booked to, to Macedonia next week and said, I'm already, I've already resigned myself to the fact that I'm going to have to go there, but could you just take a crack at this and let me know what it would cost to do it here in town? So, um, so I did, and, but he gave me a great advantage because he showed me the breakdown of what the, the Macedonian contract would look like, what, the, what the, um, the work schedule would look like. And I looked at it and I realized they wanted to use 22 hours in the studio to record this movie. And I thought, first of all, no one can afford, I mean, okay, Hans Zimmer can afford a 22 hour long set of, of sessions, but most of my clients can't. And, <laughs> and so the first thing I did was I knew the orchestrator and he was also gonna be the conductor. So we called a meeting and we powwowed, we sat down with the composer, the orchestrator, the lead engineer, and me, and the orchestrator was also the conductor. And we sat down for about two hours and we planned out meticulously how that session would run so that we started the session with the largest group of musicians, which was, I think, 65 musicians. And then as, as we planned it, after the first three hours, we dismissed the trombones and then we dismissed that group and then we dismissed that group. And by the end of the day, we ended up um, we ended up booking 10 hours in the session instead in, instead of 22. We got and we were able to dismiss people as they weren't needed any longer. So we weren't paying people to sit around and do crossword puzzles. And um, we were able to save the composer money every time we dismissed a group of musicians and we got done early. So now I'm, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the clock going, all right, guys, well, you've gotten all your cues. Is there anything you want to do over? And they're like, no, we're happy. So the director's kind of like, can I play? And I'm like, yeah. So he went out in the live room, stood on the podium with the conductor and said, all right, I need some sound effects. Can you make the sound of, and now think like a cellist, okay? We make all sorts of, we learned how to make fire engine noises, noises on our cello before we learned a C major scale. So, so he turns to my cello section and he says, can you sound like a ghost creeping in and, and opening a really creaky door and then slamming the door and, you know, something happens. Oh my gosh, they had so much fun. So they were, they, we spent 45 minutes just, coming up with scenarios and making sound effects. And he was the happiest camper at the end of that day. We, and um, we got done, we got done with, with 45 minutes of improvised sound effects on top of that. I love at, that. At the same price that it would have cost to go to Macedonia. And it was simply because we didn't need 22 hours. And not only that, but it's also a service to the musicians. You know, if I'm a flute player, and I'm playing on five cues. Why do I need to be there for eight hours or 10 hours or 14 right. hours? I'm not going to want to work for you again if I'm going to spend most of my day not working. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I I try to do what other contractors are doing and honor a, like a, a time, a minimum time commitment. Most people don't want to go out for less than a couple hours. So as long as I'm meeting that, and and I'm respecting the musician and their time. They're pretty darn happy because they they can get their cues done in in an economy of time. They can get that done, and then 
they're happy. They get they get to take other gigs. They can mm-hmm. leave and then we move on and we do something else. So you're right. I think I think it's a it's it's a very smart way to work. And and I remember being told early on that there was a formula that um, you pretty much had to count on getting about five minutes of finished recorded music per hour in the studio. But I learned as if you can work efficiently and especially if you can organize the session really well, um, you can get you can get up to eight or nine hours uh, hours minutes. You can get eight or nine minutes of music done in an hour or even more if the cues are really easy. Um, we scored the we scored the soundtrack for the OJ Made in America uh, documentary that fe- was featured on ESPN. Um, Gary Lionelli's the composer. Um, we got done in it was 33 cues. We got it done in three hours and 15 minutes, wow. which is pretty unheard of. That's, but that's a hectic he, pace. <laughs> But it was didn't feel hectic because um, we were organized. You know, we got our we got our breaks. They got, everybody got their ten at, at the top of each hour. Um, if we were really rocking and rolling, and um, we were right in the middle of something, but it was time for a break, I'll go into the into the room and say, "How does everybody feel? Do you need your break now, or can we go like another ten minutes, and then I'll give you 20? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a, a very symbiotic relationship um, that we're able to to work really efficiently. It's a psychological thing. If you're treated better, you'll perform better. Right. You know, right. But unless you're one of those directors that or one of those actors that really likes to be treated badly to get a good performance. But musicians don't typically work that way. No, no. You know, I hate um, to yell that. Let me, uh, we're a little over time, but let me ask oh, you right. one more question because I think this is really an important one for the audience to understand. Mm-hmm. To be able to hire you to say, I, I need a 105-piece orchestra or whatever I'm going to need, what level do I need to be at to be able to provide you with what you need? Like, I, I'm going to need to give you music for them to play. I can't just say, hey, I need you to get me players, and then they're not going to know what to do. Well, okay, that's a, that's a really good question, and I'm going to try to answer it really. So let's say you're a college student. And you're just starting out. You know, I've I've been contacted by college students who've said, "I'm writing a I'm writing a piano concerto, or I'm writing um, a string quartet, or whatever." Maybe you don't know how to create the sheet music, but I can find you someone who could do that. So, one of the, one of the things when when I was getting when I was really getting into more of doing television and movies and things like that, I thought about like, how do I want to set myself apart? from everybody else out there because there's great contractors in this town and i i do not i do not compare myself to a lot of them you know i'm i do what i do i do it very well but they do great work and that's awesome and um they'll always be really busy um i wanted to set myself apart by being very hands-on and being very thorough so i call myself a concierge style Contractors simply meaning that I try to think of everything that is going to cost my client money. A seasoned composer is going to know that, but if you know someone just getting started might not quite know that, or they might not. They may have just gotten to LA and they don't know what the going rate is, or they don't know what studio time costs, or they just they don't know that they need a score reader and they need an orchestrator and they need to set their Pro Tools files and click up in advance. So I've learned just, again, 
I think organically by going through the process, I kept notes on what most people seem to ask for and I can get them that. So if you don't know how to write your own music and you just, you know, you're doing it in a, you're doing it in Pro Tools, um, we'll get you an orchestrator. The most important thing that I need to know is what what is your working budget and whether or not is that finite? You know, if you only have $100 to work with, um, I'm probably not your person, but I'll, I'll never turn someone completely away. Like I had a guy come to me um, and ask if I could do something for a TV show that I knew ha- could get the money, um, but he wanted he wanted me to do it for the exposure. And I said, I don't mind offering that for myself, but I am not comfortable going and asking all of my colleagues to do that because he wanted like an 80 piece orchestra. I'm not comfortable asking 80 people to play for exposure. I don't think that's fair. So, you know, I gave him some great suggestions. We've got some great training schools in LA. We've got Colburn, we've got Laksha, we've got the um, Orange County School of Performing Arts. We've got a lot of lot of options out there. So every college has an orchestra. There's a lot of options. But um, you know, if you want it, if you want it done, and you want it done here in town, and you want it done with top studio musicians, I can do that for you. But you can also find other ways to supplement by recording people remote. That you yes. know, maybe like college students and things like that. Yes. Yes. It's amazing. It's amazing either using college students or using professionals at at their, you know, their normal scale. They can get things done really fast. You know, if they're if they're working in their studio and they can get it done in an hour and they're willing to bill out for only an hour, that's not going to cost you a lot of money. And um, it's amazing how much one live musician adds to a soundtrack to to a MIDI soundtrack. If you add a quartet, that adds even more. It it breathes life into the mechanical feeling of just a straight MIDI soundtrack. And and they're amazing. The MIDI soundtracks and the libraries now are amazing. They get great sound, but it's amazing what one person can add to that. It it puts the humanity into it. Absolutely. So I would I would always encourage people ask just just you know it, i all over my website it says that you know custom proposal custom proposal put in for a free custom proposal it doesn't hurt to ask and you might be surprised what we can do with with a limited budget it really is and and another thing that you can save on a lot of people don't realize if there is a piano in the in the room where the orchestra is recording you have to hire somebody to tune the piano so right. that the piano doesn't vibrate just from the sound in the room Right. Out of key. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's really wild. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I could talk to you all day <laughs> about this stuff. But one last thing, you're doing something very special for our listeners. Through the end of the month, you're giving us a special offer. Yes, yes. So so keep an eye on my social media and also on Scott's social media. We're going to run a promo um, through the end of the month, I'm going to be giving away. All you have to do is contact us either um, either DM us on social media or email us. Are you including our emails somewhere? Or you um, yes, they'll be in the show notes. Okay, okay. So um, just just shoot us a message with the word mixer in it, and we're going to gift you the home studio uh, home recording studio ABC's class for free. And also 50% off any uh, one session 
the uh, contracting fees, admin fees. I think that, uh, yeah, contracting fees and admin fees, 50% off for one session. That is really amazing. Thank you so much for doing yes, that. People take advantage. <laughs> I just took the course Please. last night. Even if you're somebody who's had your studio up and running for a while, you can still learn some stuff from this. Sometimes we just need refreshers on the basics. And it's good to get back to that now and then. Yeah, or the equipment has changed. Like I learned not all cables are alike. If you if you just spend the money the first time on good quality cables, you won't have to be like me where you've spent thousands of dollars on cables that end up breaking. So it's good to talk to go good to talk to someone like my guy Scott at Sweetwater or whoever you've got and and get set up right the first time within your budget. You know, there's lots of options, lots of options. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for coming on the show. Good luck with the continuation of both of these programs. I think they're absolutely amazing. They're great opportunities for people like me who are independent composers to be able to work with people that we would probably not have access to otherwise. Absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. You take care and uh, keep it touch. Thank you.